0: Hello and welcome to another podcast from Urban Tiger Radio, sponsored by Cybermouse Books. This podcast is called A Magnificent Alchemy. I would like to take a moment to explain the title of this podcast i quote here from the american heritage dictionary but only because it's a good précis of a very involved subject worthy of much further exploration alchemy is i quote a medieval chemical philosophy having as its asserted aims the transmutation of base metals into gold the discovery of the panacea and the preparation Of the elixir of longevity. Medieval alchemists, sometimes a tricky lot, sought to fool kings and other wealthy people into parting with their wealth by demonstrating their ability to transmute lead, the basest of metals, into gold. They did this by sugaring the pot. They'd prepare a small crucible of molten lead and add a substance any old substance whilst intoning a secret incantation these charlatans would then stir it with a rod as they stirred the small amount of gold hidden within the rod would melt and flow out onto the surface of the lead giving the appearance that it had turned into something much more valuable their practice is still alive and thriving today, except that we now call them the food industry. Just a short chapter here. There is a child inside you. If you are listening to this podcast because you deem yourself to be overweight or unfit, I ask that before you begin, stand naked in front of a full-length mirror and look deep into your own eyes. In there you will find a child that has lived inside you since you were young in years. This child has been grown over and their welfare ignored for most of your life by a lack of concern for your own and their well-being. Then take a step back and look at yourself as you are today. Is there any wonder? that the child within is angry enough to keep reminding you that this is not the way you should look or behave. Did they ever expect to be buried deep by your own ignorance of the way you live? Go ahead, apologise to them. They deserve that apology. But it isn't all your fault, and there are things you can do about it, but if the change gets tough, remember what Jung famously said, You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. Disclaimer, this podcast is not medical advice. I am not medically trained and I do not suggest that you do or change anything without medical supervision, particularly if you suffer from any kind of chronic disorder. Any inaccuracy in anything remotely scientific is down to my personal interpretation of the facts I have discovered, and I urge you to verify them for yourselves. I am human, and that allows me to be wrong. The information in this podcast may not be as appropriate for everyone as it has been for me, because after all, we are individuals. Over a number of years, I have arrived at conclusions regarding my own health that I now feel are being justified in the press, books and scientifically reputable sources. If you are still listening to this podcast because you are unsatisfied with the way you look, your weight or your ability to function physically or mentally as a human being, especially in later life, and to understand how I changed that for myself, then listen on. This is not a diet. This podcast details what worked for me when I finally decided to change my weight, fitness and gut health. This resulted in a loss of excess body weight of around 30% over two years and an increase in my fitness and sense of personal well-being that is incalculable. This way of living may also help you lose weight and keep it off as well as enhancing your fitness and health over the long term. It can also bring out that child inside you but before you embark upon it, I have to say that like trying to stop smoking when you give up on the trying you return to the habits you had before but with an increased appetite for them. I recall the number of times I tried to stop smoking, each time returning to more and more cigarettes per day until I decided that enough was enough and it was time to stop trying and just go right ahead and stop. This equally applies to living with that extra weight I did not need. I kept trying to lose weight and sometimes succeeding very well for a time but anything lost quickly seemed just as quickly regained. If you say to yourself, or anyone else who is becoming tired of listening to you bleat on, that you are trying to stop, that is self-delusional bullshit. The only way to stop anything is to stop. No one says success is easy, least of all myself, and no matter what it is you're trying to change. But using this positive thought of, Eating to live as opposed to living to eat may help you to stay within that comfort zone where excess weight no longer hinders you from being active or healthy. I do not suggest that you become anorexic or behave in unnatural ways with food. I do suggest that you concentrate on behaving in natural ways with natural food that we have adapted over millennia to be able to safely eat. If you find yourself slipping from this method on holidays or family celebrations and travel, try finding a sensible meal in a motorway cafe, for instance, you should return to it quickly and with increased determination to redress those rare moments of excess. If you allow that slippage to continue beyond a few days, You'll find the old habits returning faster than an alcoholic at a free bar and you will be buying new clothes again to cover the weight regained. Food myths First, I'd like to dispel a few old myths. Fat on its own is not bad for you in general. Some fats can be, though the current scientific thinking shows me that the list is restricted largely to processed fats like margarine, created in 1869 because Napoleon couldn't afford butter to feed his troops, and now consisting chiefly of water and oils in various proportions. If you want to check this out, look on https colon two forward slashes en.wikipedia.org forward slash wiki forward slash margarine. Other products contain hydrogenated fats or trans fats, most of which are fats cheaply constructed from elements of chemistry you would not recognise. Carbohydrates are not intrinsically bad for you on their own. You can exist for a while solely on carbohydrates to provide the blood sugar you need, but the lack of protein in your diet will eventually make you ill. Sugars as per the preceding elements, are not bad in moderation except for teeth and the possible induction of insulin spikes, which will adversely affect your eating patterns. Where sugars really fall down is when they are in combination with carbohydrates. Salt is essential to life, but only in very small quantities. What is potentially disruptive to your system, weight, sense of well-being and overall health is the combination of any of the above four in any quantity, especially the processed fats, flavour and sugar replacements that are cheaper and easier to produce, making the end product much more profitable for the food industry. The political power of the food lobby or in pursuit Of the social panacea. Do not underestimate the political power of the food lobby on governments. If anyone wants to understand the inevitable progression of this political policy, find and watch a film called Soylent Green, that's S-O-Y-L-E-N-T Green, starring Charlton Heston. You need to think about how many people there now are on this planet and how many are gathered together in overpopulated cities in overly populated countries. The only way for governments to feed these massive concentrations of people while keeping them politically quiet is by manufacture, i.e. feeding them on easily available and bulky, cheap grains and sugars at the expense of sufficient natural proteins and by chemically processing replacements for the more expensive ingredients in order to make these foods acceptable to the palate. In the past, we had a varied diet that changed over the year. In the autumn, we would have had the soft fruits, berries and grains that had ripened as the animals became scarcer and harder to catch tubers would have stored sugars and starches in their fibres ready as fuel for the next year's growth. Eating these sugars and starches would have made us fatter, especially around our internal organs, because they were plentiful and we stored that fat to help us to survive the winter. Today, it is never winter, not in the sense of the food supply, So now we can live in autumn all year round, getting fatter without the winter hardships to help us lose it. Some social historians, like Yuval Noah Harari in his book Sapiens, consider the agricultural revolution to be the worst thing that has happened to the human race because it created the potential for cities and transcended natural evolution by allowing food to change from becoming a seasonally obtainable right into a commodity ripe for political and financial exploitation human beings can exist on grains sugars and starches as have been twisted out of all recognition by chemical processes into coatings for nuggets twizzlers and other euphemistic descriptions to make cheap mechanically recovered meats palatable but Because we have developed unimaginably complex systems that enable us to survive by an ability to eat almost anything, it does not mean that we should. Triggers Your brain has a built-in trigger to tell you when your system is full and when proteins from whatever source, either plant or animal, are digested and entered your bloodstream steadily they trigger this response and stop you from overeating grains, particularly wheats, heavy starches like potatoes and rice and sugars of all kinds, do not so readily trigger this mechanism. In fact, they delay it so well that even when your stomach bloats and you can see that you are full, your brain can still be telling you to eat more. You keep on eating until eventually your brain says, stop, too late. Wheats, starches, sugars and salts also require more water to digest them and your body needs to resource this. Your brain, once a typically modern food pattern has been established, even over a short period, recognises the need for the extra water and stores it all around your body in readiness. Water is heavy and adds to your daily weight. One pint equals one and a quarter pounds. If you want that in metric, you're on your own. However, once these wheats, starches, sugars and salts do enter the digestive system, your body converts them into blood sugars that produce a spike that gives you the familiar sugar high. The extra sugars produced are stored in muscle tissue. In the past, this would have been most useful as the act of simply living and navigating through the day would have used up this substance and been of help to us. These tissues today become full of unused glycogen. The pancreas, forced to respond to reduce this unnecessary level, produces insulin in an attempt to reduce this and return it to the liver, where it is converted to fat and stored around your body. This response, according to current science, creates an approximately 25% increase in appetite for consumption over and above that which is naturally required to make us feel sated. You know where the extra 25% has gone. It's under your belt or squeezed into your knickers. The immediate result of a provoked insulin response is a crashing from the sugar high to a sugar low, leaving you feeling hangry and demanding more of the same food as quickly as possible and in a usually inappropriate quantity. I now have computer keyboard muscles and too much of this energy in waiting will be detrimental as my body would have to convert it to fat which can easily be stored elsewhere around my organs. This fact is used by the processed food industry to provide just the right balance of appetite-expectant elements in the manufacture to leave you wanting just one more biscuit or one more slice of bread or cake. This is easy for them to do because one thing the industry knows very well is just how addictive processed carbohydrates and sugars are. Addicts When it comes to carbohydrates, I admit that I am an addict. As are, unconsciously, most people. I'm at my absolute worst when confronted by a party buffet. I'm entranced by the taste I expect to get from those crispy chicken wings or the mushroom volivants or the cheese sticks or, well, I could go on, but the list of pre-packaged, pre-processed foods available at such occasions And each item prepared in such a way as to keep you coming back for more and more, is endless. Suffice it to say that I am, definitively and without question, a confirmed addict. But in respect of addiction, I'd like to state something that has become obvious to me far too late in life and should be to you. Before I ever smoked a cigarette, someone, somewhere, had to grow the tobacco. Perhaps they understood it had potential as a personal habit, but maybe they grew it because they had succumbed to the habit themselves. Then someone quite entrepreneurial recognised this new habit and decided to profit from it. His name was Sir Walter Raleigh. Tired of tobacco having to be constantly relit, some fool then introduced saltpeter into it to keep it glowing. Fine for the tobacco industry. Disaster for your lungs. Raleigh was the beginning of a not so very long train of events, starting with Native American crops that ended up with a processed cigarette in my 11-year-old mouth. It's the same with people addicted to alcohol, cannabis, heroin, cocaine, crack and lately ketamine. If they had to make it, grow it or process it for themselves, it would remain a very localised personal problem and not one for society at large. The food industry understands our human propensity for addiction. Not only does it understand the fact, but it also understands exactly how to feed the legal need and profit from it. The Magnificent Alchemy Of processed food, or how to change their base materials into your gold. There's a tremendous amount of literature and research out there that I've long studied and drawn on here regarding the way in which the industry uses the capability it has to reduce base items such as grains, starches, and sugars into many, many different shapes, tastes, and textures. So I'm not going into it here. If this podcast has been of interest to you and you want to know more, go and take a look at or listen to Zoe.com. That's Z or Z if you're American. O-E dot com. Zoe dot com. It's free to listen to as a podcast. To the food industry, it doesn't matter what else is lost in the process. Fibre can be reintroduced for textures that we enjoy exercising our teeth on or removed and a residue blended into that silky smoothness that we ice cream ourselves to comfort with. Even taste, lost in the process, can be reinstated or enhanced through identifying the chemicals that create those tastes in natural substances then recreating them in vast cheap quantities in vats that have never seen a plant. Anything that says extract of, or essence of, should be as suspect as the old cigarette ads, you're never alone with a strand, or welcome to cowboy country. Any foods, snacks, treats that suggest, sometimes blatantly, that they are a healthy option, should be ignored totally, along with anything that may suggest it is one of your five a day. In fact, anything with the word health on the label is a dead giveaway, especially, but without exception, fruit juices or drinks. They are incredibly full of cheap sugar. Cough or eat your way to an early grave, it's your choice. This is only one of the ways in which the food industry assaults your susceptibility. Remember, The food industry does not have a commitment to your well-being. They're not altruistic in any sense. They have no loyalty to you or anything else except their financial bottom line, and they don't care if your own bottom line becomes grossly out of shape in the process. If, in fact, through the ever-persuasive media, this extra weight can be made acceptably fashionable in the way that it is attempting today, then so much the better for their continuing profitability. Marketing or the secret incantation. In order to expand their profitability, the industry resorts to marketing. Marketing has become a modern day industry that is a modern day evil when misapplied. At its best or worse, That division depends on whether you are a perpetrator or victim. It's so subtle that you don't notice it. The intended target is unconsciously influenced by it. The only way to counter this attack is to recognise what marketing actually is. Every billboard or road sign, TV or magazine ad is attempting to convince you of something they have to sell. Usually subliminally because your forebrain doesn't really have the time to digest all this information at one go. Repetition of the message over a period is what makes the sales harpoon penetrate your consciousness. And once it's in, it does not matter to the marketing practice whether the product is a benefit to you or not, so long as they separate you from your money, which is precisely what they are paid to do. To make it simpler... Have you ever wondered why the sweets and chocolates, all of which are highly profitable and addictive, are placed at child height beside the supermarket checkout? It's because that influences your children to influence you. You may not be susceptible to that marketing when it's in your face, but you are susceptible to the happiness of your child who's been emotionally disrupted by marketing practices. Remember the TV ads where your children or husband came home from school or work and were joyously happy because you'd sprinkled the carpet with talcum powder then hoovered it up again? Well, the marketing industry is still laughing its socks off at that one. How many women worked their nuts off making the house shine with a particular polish because that made them a perfect mother with perfectly happy families who rushed home to greet and thank them? Did you use more washing-up liquid because your mardy ass child was waiting to make a rocket out of the bottle? Did it work for you emotionally? Do you remember achieving that level of perfection? No, and I don't either. So why should we believe them about anything else? How to expose the alchemist or your best chance longevity read the label as a rule foods that have no labels are better for you than anything with one but having made that huge swerve of choice to avoid the marketing hype you then have other choices to make but they get easier to break the above rule for a moment some foods are packed usually lightly in order to preserve freshness moisture content or to prevent bruising. Fresh fruit sometimes falls into this category. This packaging can be fine, but wasteful. It usually serves to end up in landfill. But to reinforce the rule against packaging, when you do pick up an item similar to the above, please read the label. If it contains anything that you would not find in your own kitchen cupboard, put it back on the shelf. Who carries a jar of carrageenan on their shelf or a bottle of xanthan gum at the back of the drawer, let alone a packet of monosodium glutamate or sodium nitrate, guar gum, acesulfame potassium, sodium benzoate, aspartame, etc., 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 or such as maltodextrin which can be dangerous for celiacs or dibasic calcium phosphate, an additive in most breakfast cereals, also very high in salt, and in toothpaste, enriched flour and noodles. Yeast extract, for instance, a common ingredient, is also called autolysed yeast extract or hydrolyzed yeast extract and is added to certain savoury foods like soy sauce, and salty snacks to boost the flavor. It's made by combining sugar and yeast in a warm environment, then spinning it in a centrifuge and discarding the cell walls of the yeast. Did May Marian make that for Robin Hood? No such friar took. Watch out for anything ending in O's, fructose, sucrose, lactose, glucose, for example. These are all sugars added to enhance the flavours lost through processing. Any celiac will tell you, do not buy tinned soup. The level of wheat content used in any tinned, dried or processed soups and stews would make them ill. It's not helping you either. It's there to bulk up the content and also because apart from the water, it's by far the cheapest ingredient in the tin. If it doesn't taste enough of carrots, tomato, celery, whatever, chemicals will sort that out, and or more sugar, and or more salt. If you are unsure, read the label. Remember those popular boxes of cake mix? For some years I worked in a factory, which they euphemistically called a bakery, and it was nothing more than a chemical plant. Flavourings, colouring and raising agents arrived in bags and were mixed in the right quantities with bland processed flours, salts and sweeteners, then boxed and shipped out. The only baking I ever observed was in the laboratory, where they tested experimental product for new chemical combinations. This is not food, as our ancestors would recognise it. Not least because the bakers drove forklift trucks. If you can accept any of the foregoing premises, then you're already on your way to a better shape. Moving on, what should you eat and what should you avoid? I can only speak from personal experience here. From now on, I am telling you what worked for me, how I applied it and still do to this day and remind you that this is not medical advice. Doctor's advice. I count myself lucky to have discovered what works for me after many years of trying different diets, including Atkins, meal supplements, shakes, etc. You name it, I've probably tried it, and ended up being heavier than I started within a few weeks of ceasing the diet. Largely because these complex ways of eating are either totally boring, very expensive, unnatural, or impossible to sustain, over more than a few weeks. One thing I have to make clear is that for most of my life, living on a so-called normal, or to coin my own doctor's phrase, a middle-of-the-road diet, I experienced acid reflux and indigestion on such a grand scale that I had to take constant medication for it. By adopting my current lifestyle, I've been able to dispense with medication for this condition, Resorting to it's only rarity after falling off the wagon. Usually Christmas and birthday cake, I get two, serves me right for being born at Christmas. If a doctor suggests a middle-of-the-road diet for me again, I'll tell him that flattened hedgehogs and badgers are in short supply these days. But not all doctors' advice is misguided. Back in around 1956-7, my father who suffered from thrombosis even as a 30-year-old, was constantly advised that he needed to lose weight to ease the strain on the arteries in his legs. He had an active job as a plumber and wasn't overweight by today's elastic standards, but at 6 feet tall and 17 stone it was more than he needed. He tried repeatedly to just eat less, as was the advice at the time, and failed. Then one day, in my presence, his doctor told him categorically that if he stopped eating bread and potatoes, he would certainly lose weight. Dad used to take pack-up sandwiches to work, and he was to stop that too, and take food in a box. It worked. Within a year, he was down to around 14 stones, but such was the power of habit, not just his, but that of my mother and everyone around us, that gradually His diet normalised back to where he'd been before, and so did his weight. This memory was the belated trigger for my own research on the subject and became the basis of the lifestyle I eat today. If anyone asks if I care about any consequences from this eating arrangement, I always say that I'm following doctor's advice. Changing the guard So what do I eat? And how do I eat it? It's actually quite simple, with only a few things to work at. But one thing to remember here is that no worthwhile change is instant. All things take time. And to change the relationship between your body's response and the food you put in it also takes time. I reckon it's around 6-8 to weeks to change your microbiome content. So it begins to bring about this improvement that you were expecting. During this period you may experience energy fluctuations, changing bowel movements and probably a lack of will to see it through. These symptoms are because your gut has become so used to the consumption of crap that it has developed special microbes to deal with it. What you are now doing is changing the guard. Accepting why it is you are doing this and how much you want to succeed will get you through this period and out into clearer and better energy levels. Like I've said before, you have to really want this. Fermentation One amazing thing that I introduced into my diet was fermentation. Fermentation Fermentation is nature's way of transforming naturally occurring sugars and fats into forms that we can digest without harming our gut microbiome or sparking an insulin response. These fermented foods introduce beneficial naturally occurring bacteria into our digestive systems that have been depleted by factory processed food, most of which is sterilised to the point of killing off anything useful to us. The bacteria in the microbiome of our gut lining are essential to our well-being and have lived with us since time immemorial, despite our most recent attempts to kill them off. These bacteria digest the food we eat on our behalf, busily converting them into fuel and releasing the nutrients that we require for life in an easily accessible form directly into our gut lining and from there into our bloodstream. If the food you are eating is easily digestible by these bacteria and doesn't require special treatment by the body's resources, then nutrition is simpler and hits that I am full trigger more quickly. Foods that are unnatural or difficult to digest deplete your bodily resources and energy. Remember idle pie? I slept too many of those off in front of the TV. The immediate revelation to me was the introduction of kefir into my diet. The kefir I make at home is derived from the solids in milk, including the fats and sugars. What we do with kefir is to capture some of the good bacteria and encourage the direction it naturally takes into what is now well known as a beneficial form. The bacterium in kefir separate the milk sugars and fats from the acidic whey that constitutes approximately one-third of full-fat milk. It then digests the sugars and fats in the jar into extremely nutritious forms, full of those bacteria that aid our digestion. Finished, it bears a strong resemblance to cottage cheese. Don't throw it away, it makes good stock for soups and homemade stews. If you want to see how this fermentation works, You can ask me for a copy of the video I made about making your own kefir. You can buy kefir over the counter, but because they need to ensure a longer shelf life, it is mostly sterile. So while it tastes like kefir, it may lack a lot of the things that make it a worthwhile food. When we drink kefir, the bacteria in our gut that actually aid our digestion multiply at the expense of those that don't. Over an eight-week period, the gut microbiome is shifted away from those bacteria that have grown to thrive on assorted chemicals or those foods like flowers and starches that require a much more acid environment in which to survive and grow into a microbiome that is much more comfortable and creates far less bloating and gas. These unfriendly bacteria that are being replaced are usually found in the large intestine where they sweep up the indigestible food, for example, excess fibre, that we've been sold as delicious and desirable but have failed to give us the promised nutrition and therefore not been digested completely in the small intestine. These bacteria are the ones that produce methane by their actions. Don't feed them and you don't get the methane. No methane! no farts. no brainer making and consuming my own kefir is easy see this link to https://kefirco which is k e f i r k o . c o . u k and if it means i no longer have acid reflux it may cure yours too and what's that worth After some years of experiment, I consider Tesco Organic Whole Milk to be the best and tastiest starter for successful kefir. Another thing worthy of note is that once I started on the kefir, I experienced a lowering of my body odour. This happened quite quickly and has since dropped to zero even after an extensive workout in the gym, to the point where I can no longer do the smell test on my clothes. I also drink homemade kombucha. I make this from green tea, but there are hundreds of recipes out there. Making it from any kind of tea means that it ultimately contains caffeine. So for some people, it may not be a good late evening drink. While kombucha is refreshing and also very good for your microbiome, I find kefir is by far the best for weight loss and reducing acid and bloating. So, what do I actually eat? It's probably easier to state what I leave out of my diet. I wish there was a better word for that. Diet has such miserable connotations that I shudder whenever I use it. So, breakfast. cup of black coffee, no milk, no sugar, and a half tumbler of kefir or kombucha before I get up. Once up and showered, breakfast usually consists of a smoked salmon slice. No, it's not posh. I buy it from Aldi and there's enough in one small packet less than a fiver to last me a week. This gives me some of the omega-3 fatty acids I need to protect my cardiovascular system. Plus, a generous slice of iceberg lettuce with four slices of cucumber, five rings from a pointed Romano pepper and two tablespoons of cottage cheese. Then i chill out, read the spectator, and take another black coffee. I find that this breakfast leaves me feeling sharp, active and aware. You perhaps think it's all down to the caffeine in the coffee? Perhaps it is. Who am I to argue? I drink black coffee all day, but note there's never milk or sugar in it. Unfermented milk bloats my stomach, as it does a lot of people. Dinner. Don't get confused here. In Yorkshire, dinner happens at dinner time, round about 12.30pm. This is why schools have dinner, ladies. Dinner is always the same for me. I suppose I'm predictable and far enough on the spectrum to enjoy routine and miss it when it doesn't happen. Dinner consists of one large fresh apple. I slice this into four slices from each side, then get out the cheese. Yes? Cheese is processed, but naturally, and if you choose carefully, it has no additives at all. And it's chock full of good bacteria. And you can forget all the old myths around it clogging up your arteries, etc. According to current research, that's cobblers. I make sandwiches of cheese, usually a blue cheese, although anything will do, using the slices of apple instead of bread. With blue cheese, you get more good bacteria for your money. It's laced with them. This meal isn't heavy at all and carries enough steadily releasable energy to keep you going for around five hours. It's the one meal a day that I actually look forward to and it sustains me easily through my activities twice a week at the gym. Tea Like any good Yorkshireman, I eat tea at tea time, not supper like pretentious people. This is a meal that I usually begin to prepare at approximately 5 to 5.30pm and eat by 6 o'clock. I eat meat with this meal, although it's usually, but not exclusively, chicken. I was given training in preparing Indian food by a very good friend, Amarpal Harar. Look him up at icookindian.com, which is as it sounds. He's a chef with a Punjabi heritage, so usually the chicken is in a curry. Oh, made curries are brilliant for all sorts of reasons. You can't control what goes into a takeaway, so make your own. Current thinking is that we should all include a large variety of plants in our food in order to feed our gut microbiome. One way to do this meaningfully is to introduce more spices into whatever you cook. I use the following regularly. Olive oil, extra virgin and lots of it. Turmeric, fresh ginger, a lot of. Garam masala, which translates as warm spices. Chili, live. Flakes or powder is recipe dependent. Fennel seeds, coriander, seeds, powder or preferably fresh. Fenugreek, onions, lots of shallots instead of garlic, I'm a vampire, mustard seed, paprika, basil, cumin, cardamom, oregano, thyme and sage. I also use a lot of mushrooms and bell peppers, all three colours, and cauliflower, which is also good in curry, fried early amongst the onions. Slice the florets thinly. I also add garden vegetables, including bean sprouts, stir-fried in spiced olive oil. I occasionally add a tablespoon of smooth peanut butter to make a satay. But no potatoes, ever. If anyone wants a good curry recipe, please ask me at urbantigerradio2 at gmail.com. They're free. Whenever we go out to eat an Indian-style meal, which in Sheffield tends to mean a Bangladeshi-style meal, we are always offered some kind of flatbread or rice. On a subcontinent, people use the flatbread instead of cutlery. They tear off a piece and use it as a shovel to scoop up the meal proper and fill their mouths with it, so it's there for a reason. The rice is on the plate because it's cheap, And as a carbohydrate, it has the advantage of making you desire more of that and less of the more expensive ingredients. It looks like you're getting a good deal. We're back to marketing again, but this time with a small M. It fills your belly, but not your brain. To those of us who use cutlery, the bread has the same effect as the rice. Rice itself, to me anyway, tastes of nothing. But soak it in curry sauce and guess what? You've processed it into something that has taste, if little else, of value. Doesn't that sound familiar? By the way, don't substitute chips or fries for the rice. That's twice as bad. Add a vegetable side dish instead. Not having the flatbread, chips or rice... I eat as much as I want of the curry without feeling bloated or underfed. The brain switches off my appetite early and I go away sated, not stuffed. I never measure my food. I never count calories. I never have to think about it. Now comes a very important part. After my tea has had a few minutes to assert itself, I have a nardicot, which is an easy peel small orange, to cleanse my palate. I usually have this before 7pm and that time is important for the following reason. Daily fasting. This is not difficult to achieve and brings tremendous benefits to the microbiome by giving it time to complete its task of carrying out daily repairs to your immune system. A 14-hour fast is recommended and is easy to achieve. Stop eating at 7pm and take breakfast at 9am. Most of that time, you are fast asleep anyway. When you wake up, there'll still be enough fuel in the tank to take you out or to the gym for an hour before breakfast if you wish. A lot of people who eat later than 7pm, perhaps due to work restrictions, delay breakfast until later in the morning or skip it altogether. This fasting is very important for your gut health, your overall metabolism and levels of tissue inflammation and is also beneficial to your weight. Most of what you eat after 7pm ends up in the places I mentioned previously, I know because I used to do it too. This is probably the only part of our poor eating habit that requires major willpower, because we eat at those times out of pure boredom, but after a few days or weeks of this, it becomes routine, and you find it much easier to deny the urge to eat senselessly. Biscuits, crisps, or chocolates are purposely designed to fill this void between eating a meal and going to sleep. If you're determined to lose weight, go through the cupboards and throw them all out and don't buy any more. Remember the snack they said, you can eat between meals without ruining your appetite? Marketing bullshit. These snacks are temptation incarnate and no, just having the one will not do. Remember how addictive they are? Leaving out these carbs and starches also means you won't get the urges in the way you did. If you must snack, try an apple. It works wonders. Also, if you need a drink, try a glass of kombucha. Not only is it refreshing, but made properly, it won't spike your blood sugar and it will help your gut bacteria to clear up the debris of a day's digesting. Again, this is easy to make for yourself with a little organisation. Look it up on freshlyfermented.co.uk, as that sounds. I don't drink much alcohol. I have an occasional beer in the evening, Guinness, because it's made from barley, less acid-inducing than malt from other grains. And I don't worry about that, because in previous attempts at losing weight, I found that two months either with or without alcohol made absolutely no difference to my weight. To sum this up, this method of eating to live meant a reduction in my overall weight of three quarters of a pound per week, most weeks, until I reversed from almost 13 stones down to nine stones, a total loss of 54 pounds. Of course, this didn't happen every week. Sometimes at holidays and high days I fell off the wagon and it went back up a pound or two or three or five. But weight quickly gained is just as quickly lost when you resume the regime. Losing weight at this pace is beneficial in many ways. It took me two years while growing in confidence and self-image the whole time. One benefit of losing weight by this method is that the first signs of it are not external because the dangerous visceral fat surrounding your internal organs is the first to reduce. You can feel this by the change in your stature and your weight on the scales. Do not expect miracles. You are changing the way you live your life. This is not Weight Watchers. Any weight loss will result in you having a bit of spare skin once a subcutaneous fat begins to disappear. As well as being the largest organ in your body, your skin is also remarkably elastic amongst its other amazing characteristics. A lot depends on how old your skin is, not in years but in the way you've treated it, so stay off the sunbed. Losing weight slowly gives skin ample time to reshape itself to your new body. Treat it well. Use something like Aveeno Skin Relief Body Wash soothes very dry skin. A 500ml bottle at around 6 to 7 pounds is available from Amazon or Lloyds online. Shop around. There are usually offers on it. Even if your skin isn't very dry, it leaves a lovely coating that makes it feel soft to the touch. I use it every day, everywhere, including my hair, and try to let it air dry on my skin while doing other things. Aveeno also make one with almond oil that smells delicious. I use that occasionally too. I still have some wrinkles, but while I've earned all mine at my age, you can help this process along through choosing well in the bathroom. Exercise is extremely important. An hour's exercise that works up a sweat at least twice a week, plus housework, gardening, shopping locally, using the stairs instead of a lift, Even standing at the stove and cooking is essential to your loss of weight while maintaining muscle strength, the pliability of your joints and tendons and your ability not to be afraid of the act of living. Weigh yourself at the same time, same day, once a week only and never more than that. As your weight decreases, Remember what I said about the child inside you. Look in the full-length mirror again and find them deep in your eyes. They're still in there, wondering how you've had the gall to keep them locked and hidden for so long in your pursuit of every wonderful item of charlatan-inspired transmutation the marketing people are telling you to eat. No wonder that child is angry no wonder they think you are being selfish denying them that chance to step out and strut their stuff at the gym or on the dance floor are you not feeling a little guilty treating them this way because of a moment's extra gratification look in their eyes again in 8 weeks when the change has been cemented in your life and tell them soon if you help me keep this up we can both be happy Every time you see their eyes in that mirror, they will take a small step forward from where they are now until one day soon you will see them as your present. And all that has been is in the past. And if you dropped something, don't be afraid to bend down and pick it up without a second thought. Bend, stretch at the gym, laugh your way around the dance floor without feeling ashamed of what you've eaten. Of course you will.